0: guest is Michael Doris, writer, anthropologist, and adjunct professor of anthropology and Native American Studies at Dartmouth College. Mr. Doris is the award-winning author of many books, among them A Yellow Raft in Blue Water, Morning Girl, a new novel for young adults, The Crown of Columbus, which he co-authored with his wife, Louise Erdrich, and The Broken Cord, a book about fetal alcohol syndrome, which he wrote for his son, Adam, who lived with the, with the disease and who died last year. In this year of the 500th anniversary of the arrival of Europeans in the Western Hemisphere, Mr. Doris will speak to us about a topic that is critical for our time. The title he has chosen is Rewriting American History. Mr. Doris, it is a great honor to have you with us today, and we look forward to what you have to tell us. Welcome.
1: Good just
2: afternoon, and thank you for coming out on this beautiful, snowy Minnesota day. It is a thrill and an honor to be here, and uh, I'll do my best. The topic is rewriting history. All history is rewritten, revised constantly and incrementally to explain and justify the present. In attempting to piece together a pattern of events that leads from any random there to a specific here, there is an inevitable mixture of objective facts subjectively selected. In postulating a sequence, we seek to discover underlying order, an unfolding story that not only documents the way things worked in the past, but that also, as an instructive precedent, anticipates what might yet happen, thus providing us with at least the illusion of control, the imagination of accurate prediction. History of course comes in all sizes, in every scope and span. When we mentally reconstruct our day or our year, any segment of our personal existence, we term the process autobiography. In my nonfiction book, The Broken Court, I sought to untangle the threads of just three lives, my own, my wife's, and especially our oldest son's, in order to impose some meaning on events which superficially seemed arbitrary and unfair. Why, in both the narrow and the broad picture, had Adam been born permanently damaged by alcohol? What could we do to assist him, or if he was beyond all help save sympathy, what could we do to prevent that his impairment, through our failure to sound an alarm, be visited upon others? Over the course of the year, I struggled in the hours before each dawn to retrieve and organize incidents only dimly recalled, searching out the telling details, the odd departure from the ordinary, the clues whose weighted accumulation balanced the conclusions we inescapably reached. I strove to be scrupulously honest, even at the cost of embarrassment, endeavor to tell the whole truth, to extrapolate theory only from established knowledge, but at best the result was merely a shorthand and overly neat version of multiple causes and effects. It's impossible collapse the sum of 20 tough years into 350 pages. It's impossible to tell the whole story from only one point of view. A human life is not a plot to be teased out and critically analyzed in retrospect, and though each of us might be regarded as the stars of our own particular drama, we are but bit players or extras in the epics of other people. History always deceives when it pretends to be universal or to have overcome bias. Someone, was its author or editor, identified certain key elements and eliminated others from consideration because they were overly complicated, distracted from the operative thesis, or outright disputed it. Traditional Western history, if not an intentional lie, is invariably a distortion, a nearsighted tracing useful in answering a few questions. What in the world did powerful European males do next? But irrelevant to others, what was everybody else up to? Even the most thorough educational flowcharts around, those that dare to interweave the invention of the Maya calendar or the birth of Buddha with the usual chain reaction parade of pyramids, fertile crescent, Alexander the Great, Rome, Jesus, Middle Ages, Renaissance, Columbus, Reformation, American Revolution, colonialism, world wars, us. Categorically leave out primary mention of women, statistically at least half the species in any society, plus sub-Saharan Africa, most of Asia, and the pre-contact Western Hemisphere, to name only three immense geographical areas that are all but ignored. Standard history is based upon the notion that some elite lives, some favored types of people, some supposedly blessed places, are ipso facto more important than others. As a result, the argument goes, they are more deserving of rapt attention, scholarly study, and wide allegiance. But isn't it really a matter of the shifting nature and definition of context? There's necessarily an escalating degree of generalization as the saga is expanded from the chronicle of one individual to that of the person's family, community, nation, region, continent, or era. As long as we accept, the obvious limitations, as long as we keep perspective on what traditional history actually reveals, it's no worse than any similarly self-serving enterprise. Trouble ensues only when a single group claims to own, intrinsically and forever, the comprehensive planetary narrative. If a cabal of orthodoxy presumes to monopolize and manipulate the interpretation of the past's of even those who are or have been systematically excluded from membership in the inner circle, all save a minority or denied a sense of legitimacy, a theoretical centrality to a vision whose contemporary manifestation coincides with their own existence, and in whose unfolding culmination their efforts play a substantive role a population displaced of its rightful temporal depth is instantly transformed into an assemblage of interlopers, beneficiaries, guests at a stranger's table. Even if, they've taken, even if they've lately been welcomed to the feast, their participation is hampered by the message that they've made no valuable contribution toward its preparation. The implication is that dinner is a sit-down, formal affair— and not a potluck, where everybody brings his or her own special creation, the product of secretly perfected recipes handed down through generations. A people's self-history writes its own invitation. It validates continuities, credits, earnings, marks, investments. It binds the members of a society into a unit with commonly held causes and aspirations. It functions to emphasize the hard-won base of shared values and acts to mitigate individual jealousies and conflicts. We all descend from the same primordial roots. No living human boasts a lineage more ancient than another's. And conversely, all human beings are equally modern. We are each of us, one way or the other, survivors whose ancestors through good fortune or wise choice, formed an unbroken relay. We but carry the baton in the current lap. And we're none of us in the elevator drop of bigots, independent of the influences of countless others, known and unknown, gratefully acknowledged, vociferously denied, or patently ignored. It is the nature of all cultures to change, grow, evolve, browse among earlier options and exploring solutions to new situations. There are as many micro-histories as there are people, as many macro-histories as there are self-identifying cultures. But the fact remains, if we concede the explication of our past on any level, to those who have no investment in its accurate and sympathetic portrayal, we are giving up much more than the exploration of roots. We are abandoning the future to which we are uniquely entitled. How does this work in practical terms? How do we plumb a plundered past without condescending, romanticizing, or fabricating? How do we revivify, make provocative in its own right a legacy relegated to the nicks and crannies of museums? Let me propose one example. No known group has been rendered more invisible in an anniversary year in which their prominence should have been assured than those Native American inhabitants of Caribbean islands first visited by Europeans 500 years ago non-literate and all but wiped out by successive infestations of old world diseases. The Taino are sketchily approachable through archaeology, through analogy with other small hunting and gathering groups, and through the journal entries of Christopher Columbus himself. In the latter case especially, a conscientious reader must filter out ethnocentrism to find dependable data lodged within a cloud of opinion. In short, we have access to certain classes of information, what foods people ate, what types of houses they lived in, what the weather was like, how social groups were organized, and the way people reacted to the sudden appearance of oddly-dressed visitors, but little sense of three-dimensional men and women to rewrite history, to suggest voices and personalities for the Taino and other groups peripheral to the European worldview. The protagonists need their own faces, their own stories, even made-up stories, so long as they don't violate or exist outside the perimeters of objective truth. They must be treated with respect, but not undue reverence. They must be actors, not reactors. Must be granted the dignity of their own agendas, even if these vary from Western priorities. The Taino may never have gone to the moon or built a telephone, but they also never waged a war, never depleted the ozone layer with fluorocarbons. In depicting them, we can dare to exercise that trait essential to all good history but so often denied by most historians, creative imagination. By merely imparting to the Taino the expectation of cross-culturally shared responses, by recognizing that they were as human as we, we instantly break the static stereotype. Nowhere is this process more possible and more plausible than among our children. Young minds are not yet schooled to screen out paradox, not yet programmed to gauge significance on the basis of established imprimatur, not yet fixed with a priori judgments. Most children would not contend, as did a colleague of mine, at least not with his know-nothing absolutism, that there could be no Asian, African, or Native American Shakespeare's, Plato's, or Thomas Jefferson's. If there had been, he assured me, he, as an educated man, would surely have heard of them. Unfortunately, when we present the non-Western world to young readers or listeners, we often waste the opportunity of their innocence and fall into counterproductive patterns. In the world of contemporary children's books dealing with American Indians, the road to the unhappy hunting ground is paved with good intentions but few rewards. Perhaps in reaction to a previous generation's broad categorization of native peoples as savage, dangerous, or just plain odd. The accepted approach to tribal society seems a curious mixture of reverence and caution with a heavy dollop of mysticism thrown in for ethnic flavor. The reader must search hard for portraits of aboriginal men and women, boys and girls, that afford a complex view or a matter-of-fact attitude toward everyday life past, or present. The new series published by Lerner Books here in Minneapolis is a notable and welcome exception. Fictional Indians always seem teetering on the verge of extrasensory perception. Their dreams prognosticate with an eerie accuracy any weather reporter would envy. They possess the convenient ability to communicate freely with animals and birds, and they demonstrate a knack for nature-based simile. In the politically correct vocabulary of multiculturalism, Native Americans of whatever tribe or period tend to be an earnest humorless lot, stiff and instructive as museum dioramas. In other words, boring. As a child, I seldom identified with Indians in books because, for the most part, they were utterly predictable. They longed for days gone by, were solemn paragons of virtue, and were, in short, the last people I would choose to play with. Indian kids seemed far too busy making pots out of clay or being fascinated by myths about the origin of the universe to be much fun. They didn't remind me of anybody I knew, especially my cousins on the reservation. Why are these Indians so wooden? Typecast in advance of introduction in a particular story, they're set in concrete, the antithesis of dynamic, the opposite of surprising, the denial of real life. And though children who hear or read such tales may not be able to articulate this drawback, they validate it in their nightly reading choices. If you don't really want to go to bed, you don't choose a book guaranteed to put you to sleep. In fact, portraying non-Western peoples as dull is worse than bad entertainment. It's counterproductive to the intent of most parents and teachers. We seek to expose our children to other cultures in an effort to encourage tolerance, to pique a lively curiosity, and to promote an appreciation for diversity. This is all fine as long as the encompassing story is full of nuance and subtlety, as long as our attention is earned and not smugly presumed, as long as the basic common denominator that underlies all individuals, the delight and dilemma of being complicatedly alive, is not lost in the effort. Indian children in fiction must be children as much as they are Indians, for without some primal sense of identification some attraction towards vicarious emotion, some invitation to shared imagination that spans all the obvious points of distinction between us and them. What began as merely being foreign winds up as dutiful, even forbidding. I admit, my first impulse in writing Morning Girl had to do with justice. When Louise Erdrich and I were researching The Crown of Columbus, One of our frustrations was the virtual anonymity of the Taino. They should make good and intelligent servants was Columbus's initial and overriding impression. Among the first people he says he met was one very young girl, and I wondered who she was, or rather who she was prior to the encounter. In fact, the Taino didn't make any kind of servants. Susceptible to the old world diseases whose germs Columbus and his crew were carrying along with glass beads and red caps, they were wiped out within a generation or two and have been treated in textbooks and in popular imagination as a minor footnote, more famous for what they weren't, hostile, than for what they had been, could have been, or were. In other words, the Taino's experience was, in the extreme case, a precursor for what happened to Native peoples throughout the Western Hemisphere over the past 500 years. So I thought in this year of birthday parties and celebration of discovery, they, as the first to say hello, deserved at least an imagined voice, a whisper that suggested that they were more than a passing welcome wagon. Of course, for a writer, good intentions can be dangerous even lethal, because they tend to subvert the business of telling a story. Starting with the premise of a message is a lot like beginning a joke by announcing with a wide grin, you're really going to laugh at this one. (laughs) So when I began the book, I put all my political reasons out of my head and tried to conceive a couple of characters, hear and translate their feelings. The only departure from the method I've used in adult novels was that in this instance the protagonists were a 12-year-old girl and her 10-year-old brother. Writing in the first person, one must pay attention to various contextual and linguistic limitations. I could only know what each of the characters possibly knew and could only express that knowledge or self of, of self or of the world in language and metaphors that each might re- reasonably employ. If the suspension of disbelief were done well, the story should be accessible to younger readers and listeners. Furthermore, I had to dream a place and a time very remote from my own experience, a world that was infinitely smaller, safer, and consequently had the illusion of being better understood and more trusted by its inhabitants. Yet a work of fiction of whatever level of reader it is aimed is truly in its heart the product of an author's personal history. We can only draw with authenticity upon emotions we've known and tasted. In the case of Morning Girl and Starboy, in trying to flesh out their shadowy outlines, I naturally return to the questions I've had to ask in my own life and to the hypothesis I've tentatively formulated in connection with my late eldest son in many respects, as incomprehensible to my wife and me due to his prenatal exposure to alcohol as any imaginary character could be. A victim of fetal alcohol syndrome, our son's actions and reactions to ordinary events often forced Louise and me to fill in certain blanks to suppose the boy he might have been, could have been, and should have been, but for the insult of the manner in which he entered the world. He like the mysterious Taino, was and remained vulnerable at the mercy of more powerful others who quickly categorized him. He, like the Taino, was exploited, misunderstood, his history dismissed as inconsequential. He, like the Taino, lacked a song of his own. And so in Morning Girl and Starboy, I allowed myself to speculate freely to invite onto the page two fully invested children, curious, independent, self-analytical, strong, moving towards independence, whose flaws were the flaws of youth, redeemable with wisdom and maturity. Morning Girl and Star Boy are not, I think, brilliant or precocious, but merely typical. Likely, if circumstances had been different to grow into decent, responsible adults, people who could hold their own. In my experience, if that can happen, it seems the most marvelous of miracles. Too often, I think, when we reflect upon the sweep of history, we fail to see the individual tree for the forest. The people who met Columbus become the Taino, instead of possibly Morning Girl and Starboy. Their parents, she wins the race and speaks to birds the grandfather who they remember fondly, the new sister who never got to be born. All distinctions for convenience are swept aside in favor of the lump category, learning disabled, good servants, homeless, primitive, invisible, without a past, without a future. It's an efficient solution, and we value efficiency. But happily, it's not a rule that a writer must follow. Alone before a page, in the quiet of early morning, anything seems possible. Dream children can come to life, talk to each other in argumentative, demanding voices, assert themselves, expect to be heard. A history interrupted or interfered with can be restored, celebrated. It's been a thrill for me to listen, to allow a pleasure that real life does not permit, And if, as I'm sure is the case, I haven't gotten it completely right, perhaps in the reciprocating imaginations of those who read this little book, this mild rebuttal to the booming microphones of quincentenary self-congratulation, this rewrite of possible history, two pretend Taino children will at least be recognized as capable of bearing names. On the blank slate of time, a new history of sorts can be heard. It displaces no existing chronicle, though it may illuminate them and put some of their unchallenged claims in perspective. And what do you know? There turns out to be plenty of room for everyone's story. I already mentioned... Columbus's view of the Taino, they would make good and intelligent servants. He planned to take several of them back to Spain, as he puts it, to to teach them to speak. In fact, he took them back to Spain as slaves. But what might the Taino have thought? These people who didn't know about weapons, these people who welcomed visitors as good news, have thought when they saw him for the first time. I conclude Morning Girl with that, and I'll conclude my prepared remarks with just a little bit of that story. This is Morning Girl speaking. She's 12 years old, and she's out early in the morning on her island. <clears throat> I looked at the place where I was to remember it. The island was all green and brown, the flowers red and yellow, the sky a deep and brilliant blue. At my feet, The tip of something white stuck from the sand. I stooped and dug with my fingers and pried out a small, empty conch, washed so gently by the sea that not a single chip was missing, just the way my brother Starboy insisted for the shells he liked to keep. My gift would be the start of his new collection, replacing what the storm had borrowed. Things would be the way they had been, only better. I put the conch into a bowl of dry seaweed where I could find it later and ran into the water. Dawn made a glare on the ocean, so I splashed through the shallow surf and dived without looking. I felt the hair lift around my head, felt a school of tiny fish glide against my leg as I swam underwater. Then in the distance I heard an unfamiliar and frightening sound. It was like the panting of some giant animal, a steady, slow rhythm, dangerous and hungry, and it was coming closer. I forgot I was still beneath the surface until I needed air, but when I broke into the sunlight, the water sparkling all around me, the noise turned out to be nothing. The breathing was the dip of many paddles, and it was only people coming to visit. Since I could see they hadn't painted themselves to appear fierce, they must be friendly or lost. I swam closer to get a better look and had to stop myself from laughing The strangers had wrapped every part of their bodies with colorful leaves and cotton. Some had decorated their faces with fur and wore shiny rocks on their heads. Compared to us, they were very round. Their canoe was short and square, and in spite of all their dipping and pulling, it moved so slowly. What a backward-distant island they must come from, but really to laugh at guests, no matter how odd, would be impolite, especially since I was the first to meet them. If I was foolish, they would think they had arrived at a foolish place. I won't make a mistake, I told myself. I kicked toward the canoe and called out the simplest thing. Hello. One of the people heard me, and he was so startled that he stood up, made his eyes small, as fearful as I had been a moment earlier. Then he spotted me, and I waved like I've seen the adults do when visitors arrive. My fingers spread to show that my hand was empty. The man stared at me as though he'd never seen a girl before, then shouted something to his relatives. They all stopped paddling and looked in my direction. Hello, I tried again. Welcome to home. My name is Morning Girl. My mother, is she wins the race. My father is speaks to birds. My, my brother is Starboy. We will feed you and introduce you to everyone. All the fat people in the canoe began pointing at me and talking at once, and their excitement, they almost turned themselves over, and I allowed my body to sink beneath the waves for a moment in order to hide my smile. One must always treat guests with respect, I reminded myself, even when they were brainless as gulls. When I came up, they were still watching the way babies do, wide-eyed, and with their mouths uncovered. They had much to learn about how to behave. Bring your canoe to the beach, I shouted, saying each word slowly so they might understand and calm themselves. I will go to the village and bring back mother and father for you to talk to. Finally, one of them spoke to me, but I couldn't understand anything he said. Maybe he was talking Kareeb or some other impossible language. But I was sure we would find ways to get along together. It never took that much time. And acting out your thoughts with your hands could be interesting. You had to guess at everything, and you made mistakes. But by midday, I was certain we would all be seated in a circle, eating steamed fish and giving each other presents. It would be a special day, a memorable day, a day full and new. I was close enough to shore now for my feet to touch bottom, and quickly I made my way dry land. The air was warm against my shoulders, and there was a slight breeze that disturbed the palm fronds strewn on the ground. I squeezed my hair, ran my hands over my arms and legs to push off the water, then stamped on the sand. Leave your canoe right here, I suggested in my most pleasant voice. It will not wash away because the tide is going out. I'll be back soon with the right people. The strangers were drifting in the surf, arguing among themselves not even paying attention to me any longer. They seemed very worried, very confused, very unsure what to do next. It was clear they hadn't traveled much before. (laughs) I hurried up the path to our house, but not before I remembered to take the white conch shell from the seaweed where I had left it. As I dodged among the trees, I hoped I hadn't done anything to make the visitors leave before I got back, before we learned their names. If they were gone, my brother Starboy would claim they were just a story, just my last dream before daylight. But I didn't think that was true. I knew they were real. Thank you.
0: Today's questions will be sorted by Randy Lebedoff and Wenda Moore. And now, Mr. Doris, if you will return to the podium, I'd like to begin with this question. I understand you recently spent some time in Zimbabwe, in Africa. Would you tell us something about that experience?
1: Yes, I I joined the board of Save the Children Foundation uh, last year, and one of the presentations that we heard was from the Save the Children Southern Africa representative who pointed out the fact that there had been a drought going on in Southern Africa for seven years that was not receiving media attention, that the media in this country or all of us in this country pay attention in many cases only when it's too late, when we have the pictures from Somalia or Bosnia and we don't work in proactive ways and so I went over there in order to uh, try and write a few pieces for newspapers, and there's one in the current issue of Mother Jones magazine, about the situation in this rather progressive country that had been economically stable until circumstances made that impossible. There are almost half a million Mozambican refugees in Zimbabwe, and there are many millions of people who, unless we do something about it, we as the human species, of whom we are all part, I presume, uh, the situation in a couple of years could be as bad in Southern Africa as it is in the Horn of Africa today. And it doesn't take much. One One of the really practical things I learned in all this experience is that when you give to charitable organizations, you can do this marvelous thing such as designate what you want your funds used for. And if you gave, for instance, $1, you could designate that that fund be used for the year's tuition for a Zimbabwean girl at school where she would get a lunch every day. There's a $1 a year tuition. And in a country where the minimum monthly wage is $30 a dollar counts, if you were to give $300, you could deepen an existing well in a community that serves up to 1,200 people and sustain that community so the people would not have to become internal refugees in their country for a year until the water hopefully comes back. $600 makes a new well. I mean, these are only particular examples in a particular place and the world is full of need. But I think what we must do as a, as a community of human beings is remember obligation, in the same way my daughter remembered obligation when, when I went there and she emptied out her piggy bank and said, give this to somebody who needs it. She didn't expect a thank you note. She didn't expect to solve all the problems of the world with one gift. She merely had that normal human reaction I think we all have, I have, they need, I give. And you can make that an even more intelligent donation when you designate that donation for a particular good. And that requires a little research, but it's not that much. And I, I didn't mean to give a pitch, but, but it's, it's, it's a strange thing. When you go to a place like that and you go to a refugee camp with 42,000 people and not a doctor in sight, and 12,000 people living without shelter in the winter and then you come back to the affluence of the United States and you find yourself in this weird tightrope between going crazy and thinking, I'll drop everything else and devote my whole effort to this one particular cause and forgetting about it altogether. We each of us, I think, have to find a way to find a middle road.
0: Thank you. Question from our audience. What is the appropriate role for fiction to play in enlarging and revivifying history?
1: At a, at a talk uh, earlier this year, someone asked me what is the difference between history and fiction, and I said fiction was true. Uh, I think fiction plays an enormous role as a complement to statistical history or to objective history. All history is subjective, as I suggested in my talk. History And all fiction, theoretically, is subjective. And so if one meshes the two, if one imagines people within the structures that have been created by so-called objective history, then I think we make a kind of bridge that traditional history alone does not permit. And that is that is a bridge of empathy. And so good fiction, that is fiction that is consistent with the facts, that doesn't violate or glamorize or, or, or romanticize the facts, but rather fleshes them out, uh, is a very important tool.
0: Thank you. Uh, for the youth in our audience, what thoughts do you have to share about writing our history in the future? <clears throat>
1: I think everybody has to fight for their own history uh, and fight for a way for that history to be heard. I'm not talking about replacing other people's history, I'm talking about seeing things valid within one's own narrative. And history is told on many levels. History is told around kitchen tables all the time, and it's a very valuable history. History can be written down in letters. History can be kept in journals. Those are important facts. What is troublesome and what I think the youth and the adults in our audience have to fight against is the notion that one set of people controls all history and that it's only pertinent for them. History belongs to all of us. We're equally old. We are equally modern. We are equally entitled. And I don't have an easy solution. There's only so much time in the school and there's only so much curriculum and all of the rest. I think communities must take a certain charge of their own education. And when they take charge of that education, they must all strive for balance. That is not to be exclusively one's own history, but to see the world within perspective because the world is so much smaller than it used to be. And we cannot exist in the next century without having some real sense of how Africa came to be modern Africa, of how the Soviet Union, what was the Soviet Union has changed, of what is the basis for the anti-Semitism and and ethnic rivalries and, and bitternesses in Europe, We have to understand that stuff so that we don't keep making the mistakes all over again, and within that framework, we have to have a thread of our own validity.
0: Thank you. Another question. You often write your novels from the perspectives of women, and I wanted to know how you write across the gender gap, this person asks.
1: Well, I think the only true answer to that question is that I was raised by two grandmothers, three aunts, and a mother. (laughs) Those are the first voices I had to understand, I had to listen to, uh, and uh, I'm I'm trying a really radical and challenging departure with a new book of short stories next fall. It's called Working Men, and I actually try and write from a man's perspective.
0: (laughs) Thank you. Uh, this person asks, would you comment on the role of films, especially current ones such as JFK, Malcolm X, and Dances with Wolves in rewriting history?
1: Uh, I haven't seen Malcolm X. Uh, I think that the, uh, the problem with films is the problem with publishing, and that is that people, not who have the initial vision of a film, but people who provide the money for it, people who uh, rework and rework and rework the screenplay and and make the directorial decisions, don't have much faith in the intelligence of viewers. And they believe, as on television, that they must show us things in such simple terms, because that's the only way that we can understand it. One of the problems with that is that a simplistic film that is sympathetic to a group that has traditionally been oppressed can go a long way towards creating positive stereotypes to replace the negative stereotypes. my own feeling is that we should strive for the complex view. We should struggle for the complex view. And we, to do that in, in the sense of films, wind up having to support independent filmmakers and seek out the films that are made for under $6 million, but made with integrity. It's very hard. I know Yellow Raft is being made into a film this summer, Um, Broken Cord was made into a television film. Without the cooperation of Jimmy Smits and uh, uh, Ken Olin, who was the director, that movie, The Broken Cord, would have been made into a sappy, sentimental story that would have been an embarrassment to our family and a disservice to our son. But because we all conspired together, and because eventually we caused so much trouble that the network conceded that probably nobody would watch this thing, I think it got made with, with some honor, and it turns out that people watched it too. Uh, so, in terms of films, I think we just cannot tolerate simplicity on either side. We tolerated it for a long time in in the, the negative stereotype of, of disenfranchised people. I don't think we can turn it around by making the same mistake.
0: Thank you. Another question from the audience. What pearls of wisdom can you offer for parents, adoptive <clears throat> or otherwise? of children with fetal alcohol syndrome, ages 0 to 10, especially regarding the public and private rift?
1: I wish I had pearls of wisdom. Uh, I don't. The problem with fetal alcohol syndrome is that it can't be fixed. Parts of the brain that were never formed cannot be manufactured. It can be prevented. It's the number one cause of mental retardation that is preventable in this country. But every year, about 75,000 People a year are born in the United States impaired by prenatal exposure to alcohol, and they will many times live lives that are enormously deprived. Many people with full FAS wind up in prison or wind up on the streets homeless. It is a tragedy of our society. It can be cured best by good prenatal care, which we must insist upon within our society and by the availability of in-house treatment centers in which chemically-dependent pregnant women can bring their children with them so they don't have to make a decision between leaving one child in an alcoholic environment in order to spare another child from being born impaired. There isn't a magic formula in schools. Louise and I established a foundation in Seattle, uh, the Seattle Foundation for Fetal Alcohol Syndrome Research, on practical curriculum because for all of those kids going through the schools who are mislabeled and misunderstood because they don't have abstract thinking ability, uh, there is a need to figure out a way to educate them so that they can be socialized, they can live in in society, find some satisfaction and contentment in their lives. There is no perfect curriculum yet. The only thing I can say is that it works one-on-one, that plateaus are reached. Multiplication tables are oftentimes one of those plateaus as an example of abstract thinking. But when the one-on-one stops, when the child or the grown-up reaches 18 or drops out of school or whatever, there is a regression. There is a regression back to the plateau. So what I think we need are some sort of safe places within our cities, within our country, where people who are happy but incapable of understanding the rules of society can live out their lives functionally. Uh, I am certainly not talking about ghettoization, and I am certainly not talking about having this as an ongoing situation. I think we need to have real prevention. But as of right now, for those of you who are FAS or FAE parents or who have any children who are damaged and not fit into the mainstream, you know that private treatment centers cost about $80,000 a year. And there are very few of us that can afford that for the lifetime of a child, which might be a normal lifespan. So we need as a society to take some responsibility for situations which we at least complicitly agreed to by by not opposing.
0: Thank you. What suggestions do you have for educators of primary school children as, they, as the educators themselves try to develop a more inclusive curriculum?
1: Well, I don't presume to, to know how to educate people. Uh, I, I assume the question has to do with, with American Indian curriculum. And I, I do have an idea on that. I've always thought that it was an unwise strategy to teach children about. American Indians in the first and second grade, and then forget them. Because grown ups then come and look at land claims issues or, or legal issues, and they're looking at it from the point of view of the second grade uh, Thanksgiving pageant. Uh, it doesn't work. I think that the best way, if I were in charge of the world or I were in charge of a curriculum, I would start in the early years. But I would follow a particular tribe, especially a tribe who was, still had a presence in the region where that curriculum was carried out, and follow them all the way through, have a unit every single year through high school, so that by the time a person graduated from high school, they could understand Indian people on the same level that they presumably are, hope to understand European people, and have a, a, an appreciation of the sources of the complicated and intertwined lives American Indians and European Americans and African Americans all have in today's society. I don't think it needs to be extremely long. I mean, if we did it only in the inevitable Thanksgiving week, but a kind of yearly update on what happened next, and you eventually got to those terribly complicated issues uh, having to do with the creation of treaties and the breaking of those treaties and the situation of special status today, I think we as a society would all benefit. And I certainly don't think this should exist only in schools with primarily Indian students. I think it should exist in all schools.
0: Thank you. Another question. As a result of all the rethinking of the past 500 years during this quincentenary. Do you think there have been any significant changes for Indian and indigenous people in the Americas?
1: Theoretically, there may have been some changes. The fact of the matter remains that the two poorest counties in the United States are the two Sioux reservations in the southwestern corner of South Dakota where unemployment runs 80%. I think one of the problems with history, to get back to our our initial topic today, is that we look in the past, we beat our breasts, and we say, oh, weren't they terrible back then, and wasn't that awful, and we shed a few tears, and we walk out of dances with wolves, and we feel okay. Uh, I think that we don't have to look far to find things that we can do, things that we can invest in, uh, on a very practical level. And that, you know, it, has to, it starts with education. It absolutely starts with education. It doesn't necessarily mean charity. It starts with respect. It starts with going to the library and finding out things. I think that the attention focused on the issues of morality during the quincentenary, which was, were very troublesome to some people who wanted simply a celebration, probably have been constructive because we can see, perhaps with less defensiveness, mistakes that were made in the past. And perhaps we can learn from them so that the next 500 years we don't repeat those mistakes, not just towards Native Americans, but towards people in other parts of the world as well.
0: Thank you. What advice would you give to President-elect Bill Clinton about rewriting history and the issues that he will face?
1: Well, I really feel, I gotta tell you, I feel really silly standing up here with the 20 questions, and, you know, Mr. Answer Man, I don't know the answers (laughs) any more than you do. I remember Bill Clinton when I was an undergraduate with him at Georgetown as, as wearing a blue flannel bathrobe a lot. And, you know, <laughs> I would suggest he change his wardrobe. Uh, no, I, I, I think, quite frankly, this is an opportunity. There has been a, an incredible lack of interest and responsibility towards Indians in the past several presidential administrations there has been a decline in health care, there has been a decline in monies for Indian education, there has been a decline in money for uh, economic opportunity. That can be reversed. But I think that the first place to start is an acknowledgement of the issue of sovereignty, is to recognize that there is a historical basis between, for the government-to-government relationship that exists between federally recognized tribes and the United States, and that Those tribes have a right to be dealt with on the highest level, just as we deal with other sovereignties around the world. If it starts with that, if the kind of paternalism that has existed without funding, I might add, over the past 20 years were reversed, and people were allowed to make their own mistakes and learn from those mistakes, it's not going to be undone immediately. But responsibility has to be placed with the people whose lives are affected by choices, and not out of Washington, and not out of people who have no direct link to the communities that they supposedly serve.
0: Thank you. Some young people in our audience would like to know that if you are Native American, what tribe do you come from, where did you grow up, what reservation do you have cousins on, and do you go to powwows, and do you speak your language?
1: More 20 questions. My father was Modoc from uh, southern Oregon, Uh, a little bit Coeur d'Alene, but mostly Modoc. That reservation was terminated in the 50s under uh, the Eisenhower administration, but there's still a lot of people there. I grew up part of the time in Tacoma, Washington, where my grandmother still lives. Uh, I do go to Powwells a lot. I don't speak my own language, but I speak an Alaskan native language where I did field work for uh, 18 months, Denina, and uh, um, did I forget something?
0: Do you go to powwows?
1: I do go to powwows. I do go to powwows. And, and, and uh, uh, we were fortunate enough to have a naming ceremony uh, some years ago, many years ago, uh, at Wakpala on the Standing Rock Reservation, where this summer there will be an honor ceremony for our son who died.
0: Thank you. In writing The Crown of Columbus, someone wants to know, can you describe the process you used in collaborating with your wife to co-author the book?
1: Argument. Uh, (laughs) Sulk. Uh, (laughs) um, It actually turned out to be fun, but it uh, it was basically an expansion of the process that we use in writing everything, and that is that one of us thinks we have written a great paragraph and gives it to the other who goes across it with a red pencil writing no uh, in the line and maybe one little star, and, and then we build upon the star. It was, uh, it was certainly not something that we divided up along the lines of I writing the male voice and she writing the female voice. We both wrote both voices. We had talked about the idea of this book for about 10 years. We actually plotted it out, it's our Saskatchewan book, we plotted it out driving east across Canada uh, a few years ago. If you've ever driven across, across Saskatchewan, you know you have got to think of something. Uh, so when we crossed the border from Alberta, we started, and when we got to, to, to Manitoba, we stopped. Uh, and that was the book we would each write initially the scenes that we knew we wanted to write, and then we traded them back and forth, and lo and behold, Vivian was Vivian, and Roger was Roger, regardless of which one of us was writing the character, and as we got towards the end, we would bribe and assign and do all sorts of things to try and make the transitions. But we did have a kind of sustaining vision of the book, which was controversial, it turned out, and that was that if you're writing a book about the nature of discovery, whether it's personal discovery or discovery of a continent or discovery of parenthood or whatever, that the way to write that is with the sort of chaos of discovery as part of the book, the melodrama and the surprise and the suspense and the danger and the humor and, and the scholarship and all of that kind of stuff thrown in together Because you can't just talk about chaos, it has to be somewhat chaotic while you're living it. Thank you. And it was for us.
0: (laughs) Thank you. Um, We have time for one last question. Um, This person wants to know, what advice would you give a young person who wants to become a writer and a writer of history in the best sense of the word?
1: any person, again, not just a young person, I would say that, that there, are, there are several things to do. One is to keep a journal, to write something in it every day, uh, because when you eventually sit down to write about a character at a certain stage of life, you can go back to that journal, and even if you don't crib from your own life, it will be a kind of monomic device that gives you an insight into the point of view of a person of that age, and and provide you with lots of ideas. It's also great practice. Uh, I would suggest, too, that you have lots of different kinds of jobs. Uh, Interact with as many different people as you possibly can. Uh, Really taste the world in as many stages and at many classes and as many places as you possibly can discover because you write out of experience, and so you have to have experience to write out of it. Uh, I would also say don't be discouraged. Uh, I had a terribly discouraging moment when I was in college. I wrote a story I thought was pretty good. It got a bad review in the school newspaper and I didn't write again for 10 years. Uh, either don't read your reviews, uh, which is probably good advice, uh, or uh, or get over them, uh, basically. I eventually wrote Yellow Raft and Blue Water and included several lines from that story that were those lines that had been particularly singled out as being uh, unfavorably comparable to the Worth comic strip, and uh, sent a copy of the finished book to my detractor. (laughs) And uh, do that too if you're going to be a writer. (laughs) Thank you.
0: Thank you.